I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, as we are working through the book of Acts, um, we're going to get upon a very emotionally poignant time for Paul. Uh, Paul is uh, really, for the last time, speaking to some of the leaders of the church in Ephesus, a place he spent more time than any other mission site. He spent three years there. If you remember, this was the place where God did amazing things through Paul, even where uh, if people would touch his hanky, uh, they would get healed. I mean, just unusual things that God did. Uh, this was the place where even the, the demons attested to Jesus Christ as uh, the seven sons of Sceva was trying to uh, put out demons out of one man, and instead this one man said, who are you? We've heard about Paul, we know of Jesus Christ, but who are you? And beat them senseless, naked, really. Uh, and then from that was this response of God's people, the church who had, up until that time, kind of had Jesus here, but yet they kept all these incantations and spells and, and goddesses there in their house. And they realized, they were convicted from this moment, that there is one, Jesus Christ. And so the church, the people that were believers, then hosted a bonfire of all their books, uh, spells and incantations, of which the worth was over a million some dollars. And that got people's attention. And then you have the riot that ensues. And, and so you have this incredible ministry that Paul had. And now he's left there. He's gone and encouraged some of the other churches on his way back to Jerusalem. Uh, and as he goes, he, he stops in and calls the leaders to come to him uh, to this island called Miletus. Uh, because he really didn't have time to go to the city itself. Um, and so this is somewhat of Paul's farewell tour. And he, by his own admission, says, this is the last time you're going to see my face. So this was a weeping uh, moment, tearful time that Paul had with people he dearly loved. And, in fact, he sends Timothy there. In fact, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy was written to uh, Timothy as he's working in Ephesus. Later on, you see Revelation, chapter 2, sending a letter to the church of Ephesus. And we find things don't fare very well uh, in that city, uh, in that church. Uh, so, uh, Acts chapter 20, uh, we see from verses 1 through 17, we looked last week, a uh, great passage uh, where we look at the commitment of Paul to the church, uh, the commitment of the early disciples to the church, the fact that they were listening up to a message uh, after Sabbath day, they come back on Sunday, they start worshiping two days a week, uh, and they do this after, after work, so consequently it's late in the night, Paul preaches for a long time. Uh, you, think, you think it was bad getting out at 12.05? Um, you know, Paul, Paul just keeps on people falling asleep, falling out the window, dying. He resurrects them and keeps on going still till daybreak. Um, and so we see the commitment of the disciples. Uh, so the lesson there is don't fall asleep in church. All right. That's got that. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, we see the commitment of God to the church of just resurrecting someone from the dead and what that was saying, how he provided everything. And you don't have to be fearful in this life. God's, get, God's got it. He's got it for us. And so as we keep on, he, he moves on to Miletus and he calls the group together. In fact, this is a passage that I'm going to look at twice. 
Uh, in this passage, he talks about himself. Paul talks about his example among them. And I think there's some lessons for us to learn. And then he also has some admonitions to the, the group that he calls the elders. In Acts 20, is one of these passages. He says, there's a group of people. I want you to come together. And he, says, and he calls them elders. And then he calls them uh, overseers, overseers, the word for bishops. And then he says, I want you to pastor this church. And so this is where we get the idea, the concept, that there is a group of people in a church that are interchangeable with the term elders, pastors, overseers, or bishops. And it, it comes right from this passage as an example of the church in Ephesus. And so, uh, as this is God's word, I'm going to ask that we stand as we read this together. Acts chapter 20, beginning with verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God, and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent, of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities, to those who are with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. You may be seated. So this morning, I want to focus first on Paul's example, Lord willing, next time on the admonitions to the elders. In this passage, he's very much saying why he does what he does. The heartbeat of his ministry that's carried him through many travails. This past week, I was uh, meeting with a young fellow 
I was looking at the opportunity of, of beginning a discipling relationship with him. Um, and so this is our first meeting that we had this past week, and uh, we just shared my testimony with him, and he shared with me what he has known about God up to this point, and what he wants to get out of it, and at the end of it, we had this time of prayer, and asked him how I could pray for him, he shared some things with me, some fears that he had, and uh, we just prayed, and uh, I had to go, uh, and getting ready to leave, and so I said goodbye, and and I walked out, but as I was walking out, he ran out and, and stopped me. And he said, I don't know how to ask this. I kind of stumbled a little bit, and he said, why do you do, why are you doing this with me? Why do you do what you do? And it was this very sincere, heartfelt question at that moment. And I said, I'll tell you what, you read what I've given to you, and you'll find out why I do what I do. But it's just a question that got right to my heart. And so if someone was to sit down with you and ask that, what's the answer you would give them? Why are you doing what you're doing? And it's kind of Paul's answer right here. He says, Church of Ephesus, for the past three years, you've seen what I've done. You've seen how I've toiled, how I've travailed, how I've had tears, how I've served the Lord with humility with you. Let me tell you why. So let's look at some of the reasons why. As we read verse 17, 18, he gets right to it. When he, said, when he came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. There's certain statements that he makes of some decorations, and this is one of them. How I lived among you the whole time. How I served the Lord with all humility, with tears and with travails. How I did not shrink back, verse 20, from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, which gives you an idea how they did church. Uh, they had the synagogues, and then they had the house of Tyrannius, uh, but then there was also this house to house Public and house-to-house -house, uh, church life that they had. And how he met with them, teaching them, not shrinking back, teaching them, all testifying, both the Jews and Greeks, of repentance toward God and faith and our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what he's simply saying here when it's all said and done? He says, life is not about me, but Jesus. Life is not about me, but Jesus. Sometimes when you see church leaders, it, you don't get that, that image. Or when you see leaders of any sort, you don't get that image. That it's, it's not about them, that it's about Jesus Christ. And, and so, let's not just look at church leaders, let's ask ourselves this question. What is your life about? When it's all said and done, there was, uh, it's been said that uh, Augustine, or Augustine, however way you want to pronounce him, his name, had this dream that kind of shook him up. Uh, he, at that time, professed Jesus Christ as his, as his Savior and would go by the label Christian. And then in this dream, he had uh, this, this encounter where he was in, in uh, the gate, so to speak, before God. And the question was asking him, uh, who are you? And Augustine responded by saying, I am a Christian. And the angel at the gate said, you know, here we go by what you're interested in. You're not a Christian. You're a classical, 
which meant that he followed the classic philosophers, and that was what he was into. And when he woke up out of that dream, he realized, you know, that I don't know where this is coming from, but there's truth to what was just said. That if someone was to judge me by what I'm interested in, then I can't really call myself a Christian. I have to call myself a classical. So let me ask you that question. If God was to say, I'm going to label you by what you're interested in, what would be the label? How would you reveal yourself by what captures your heart? Some of us would say, well, I'm a health enthusiast. You know, somehow that just doesn't seem like very meaningful when you're dead before God. <laughs> I'm about keeping my healthy body. Okay, that was great when you're alive, but now you're dead. How's that helping you now in eternity? Some of us say, well, you know, I'm about my family. Okay, but you're dead now. And they're going on. How does that help you in eternity? Well, I'm, I'm about serving other people. Okay, but you're dead now. Those people are no longer here. I'm about my reputation, or about being true to myself, you fill in the blanks. But the question simply is, how does God see that when death comes? And so what Paul is saying here is, you know, I've lived humbly. I was serving the Lord because when it's all said and done, my life will be over and it won't be anymore what matters to Paul. I was talking with someone and said, you know, even our own family will forget us. That which we pour our life into and our resources into, they will forget you. Because chances are you won't remember, you don't know the the name of your great-great-grandfather. Unless you did some study. How has that happened? Even your own family line will forget you at some point. So what matters? Paul is saying, it's not me that matters, but Jesus Christ. I'm just going to ask you, whatever you're interested in, when you die, what's the point then? So he says, I serve the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials. And then you keep on reading. He says, well, you know, the Holy Spirit's testifying that it's not going to be good for me. It's not going to be good for me. In fact, there's imprisonment awaits me, afflictions, verse 23 and 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, bad things are going to happen, but it's okay. See, here's the second statement he was making. Life, cho- life choices are determined by Jesus' assignments. Not comfort. See, if, if life is not about me, but about Jesus, then the thing that matters is not what I say, but what does Jesus say, and what Jesus says does not always bring out my comfort. And this is where we hit one of the major idols in society in America. The idolatry of comfort. Whatever is most comfortable is what we will put our resources into to ensure a more comfortable lifestyle. 
Let me ask you, when the raises come and increase of money comes, what is the first thing that pops to your mind? This means that I can now do what? How many of those options come to you would you label as more comfortable lifestyle? You see, if life doesn't belong to you, but belongs to Jesus, then his choices are the ones that set the, the direction. When I was uh, with Chad and Amanda, which by the way, Chad and Amanda, members of our church that have been serving in the Middle East, who are coming back uh, to the States, uh, in the States, and they'll be with us September 20th on that Sunday. Uh, and so if you'd like to hear from Chad and Amanda, they'll be here on that date. Uh, but when I was with them, uh, we just got there uh, in Egypt. It was a long flight uh, to get there. I was tired and worn out. I had to carry huge suitcases to the streets of Cairo, which wasn't easy, I'm going to tell you. And we get on this train, and he says, well, I'm going to just let you know, uh, we're, we're going to go in the second class section of the train. We don't want to go third class because this is too distracting. And I don't want to go in first class because it's, it's, it's more comfortable, but no one talks. I'm just thinking, you have to understand, second class train in Egypt is not the same as coach train in North Carolina, all right? It's not the Carolinian. Uh, so there's a little bit more to this. And I'm tired and worn out so much that I can't even think straight. And I'm thinking, Chad, you know, I could have splurged the extra $10 if I meant I could sleep right now. And so my, my buddy was asking, why don't you go first class? And the simple thing is, because we're not here to be here first class. We're here to talk to people about the gospel. I was like, oh, that was a pretty good answer, Chad. You see, we have to realize what's the point of our existence. When it's all about comfort, what does it mean when we're before God and God says, I see that you're interested in comfort. I'm going to call you comfort. What if God called you, not by the name that your parents gave you, which I don't think he will. It's hard for me to get my mind around the fact that I'm telling God to call my son Canaan. I don't think that's how that works. I think God's going to call you by who you are. That's just my speculation. I have no scripture to back that up. But what if he does do that? Calls you by who you are. Calls you by that which you've been most interested in in your life. Hey, comfort, come on into heaven. What if that was the case? You see, it's not dictated anymore by our interest, but the interest of Jesus Christ. And that was Paul's statement here. You know what? Bad things are going to come my way, but it's okay. I don't hold my life as dear to me. As precious to me. If only I can finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. Let me ask you, do you know the ministry that Jesus is giving you? Jesus is giving those who follow him a ministry. He is gifting you with a task to do. He's given you spiritual gifts to do it in. And it doesn't really matter if money comes from it or not. That's totally irrelevant. He says, I've gifted you with this task. Are you doing it? You know, a lot of people have died before you ever got to this age. Right? 
all you got to do is look in the paper and you'll find some people younger than you that are dead. And their time's up. Your time is still here. And so let me ask this question. Do you know the task that Jesus is giving you to do? Are you doing it? Don't let fatigue get in the way. Don't let undivided hearts get in the way. The fact is that we want Jesus and something else. We keep on reading here. Verse 26. He says, I know you're not going to see me again. I've been proclaiming the kingdom with you. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He already talked about how he was preaching repentance toward God and a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 21. You know what he believes here? Not only does he believe that life choice is determined by Jesus' assignments and not just his comfort, he realizes that life is not about him, but about Jesus. But there's something else. He believes that every life will be held accountable to God. Every life will be held accountable to God. He, he, he has it two ways. He says, I believe I'm going to be held accountable before God, and I believe that you will be held accountable before God. You see, he's quoting something here when he says, the blood... I'm innocent of the blood of all. He's referencing a passage called uh, Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 1 through 9. Let me read this to you. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I've made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person will die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Paul knows that scripture. He's aware of it. And that's framing how he spends his life for three years in Ephesus. And as he looks back on that time, he says, no man's blood is on my hand. Because I have been a watchman. I saw and I see the judgment of God coming, and I've warned you. Do you know who in the Bible talked more about hell than anyone else? Jesus. Jesus had more things to say about hell than he did heaven. Now, when we think about a loving God, what's the first name that comes to our mind? Jesus. The one who died on the cross for our sins, right? The Lord of love. 
So what does it mean that the Lord of love, the one who died on the cross for our sins, had the most to say about hell? Put two and two together here. Matthew 25, verse 41. He says, if you don't do these things, if you're not part of the kingdom of God, you will be sent into the fire and eternal punishment reserved for Satan and his devils and the devils and the demons. Jesus said this way, it is better to pluck out your eye than to allow sin to be in your life and to be having your whole body in hell. In other words, go through extreme measures to rid of yourself of that which condemns you, the sin. Jesus said, it's better to fear God and not fear man. All man can do is kill your body, but God can kill your body and soul for eternity. Just a few statements. We don't hear about hell much, do we? You don't hear it on the radio much. You don't hear it online. You don't see too many books about hell. Interesting that Jesus said more about that than he did heaven. Why? Because there is the judgment of God coming. And it is necessary for the watchmen to sound the warning. One of the most sobering moments I ever had in college was when a professor, and I shared this with you at different times, when a professor in the midst of the classroom, knowing I was a believer in Jesus Christ, went to describe at length hell according to what the Bible says, and then looked at me and my buddy and said, do you believe that if anyone does not know Jesus as their Savior and Lord, that they will go to this place? I felt like I was just stripped in front of the whole class. And had to ask myself, do I really believe it? <laughs> and does my, what I say in my head, is it consistent with my actions? Because I had been with these classmates for a couple years. And everyone I had not shared the gospel with was an indictment against me. To say that I believe that there's a place called hell. And that if anyone does not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior does not know the experience of forgiveness of God through the grace and mercy of Jesus, that if they were to die, that would be their sentence for eternity. There is a belief that Paul has. Every life will be held accountable by God. And I believe that there will be even a moment of time where God might even bring this very second to your attention. To say there was someone bringing this to your attention, but your mind was on other things. How do those other things now compare now that you're dead before God? There is an accountability, and every life will be held accountable to God. And so he says, do everything you can to share with someone else. And then, as we keep on reading, verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these things 
These hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, you must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, is more blessed to give than to receive. We don't have that specific statement in the Gospels, but we have the spirit of it in many places. More blessed to give than to receive. And he says, look, I've not lived my life always wanting more things, not greedy. I worked so that there would not be draining from you. Because I wanted to live my life giving to you. So a happy living is determined by giving and not acquiring. Not acquiring. You see... So much of our society is about how you can gain, isn't it? When someone asks and they're trying to figure out the value of a person, they'll say, this is their net worth. <laughs> this is, this is uh, put some value on this life because this is how much money comes to this person, how much they acquire, how much they get. And it seems to me as we read the scripture that Jesus is asking, you want to know the value of a person, how much is their net giving? How much is their net giving? And so think about that. As he looks back on his three years, he says, you know how I gave to you. How I gave my life to you, gave my time to you, was persecuted on behalf of your your life. I didn't drain from you. Because it is so much more blessed to give to receive so how would you describe your individual relationships would your relationship to your spouse be more about your giving or your receiving is your relationship to your kids more about you giving or more about receiving something from them is your relationship to your parents more about you receiving from them or about you giving something to them? In your relationship with your coworkers, are you known to be more of a giver or a taker? Not how you think of yourself. Not even how others think of you. But how do you think others think of you? How do you think others think of you? That's kind of the question we're getting at here. When it's all said and done, Paul gets to the end and he says, you're not going to see my face again. But the way I've lived my life, if you're asking me why I did what I did, simply this, my life isn't about me. It's about Jesus. So therefore, my choices have been determined by what Jesus told me to do, not my convenience. Because when it's all said and done, every life is going to be held accountable to God. And I have have a clear conscience that when I'm held accountable on your behalf, that there's no blood on my hands. And yes, it's required to give, but that's been good. Because life is... A happy life is about me giving and not receiving. Sometimes we have fits of depression, fits of despair, seasons of discouragement. 
in those moments in time, I would just plead for you, hold on to these truths. Hold on to these truths. It's not about you. This is about the life of Jesus. And let him work in you so that you have something to give, just even by faith. Don't be so caught up in what other people are not giving to you. Because Jesus has already given to you all that you need. As we are looking at starting discipleship communities, we need, in our church, for the gospel to go forth, people who believe these things. That life is about Jesus, about his decisions, not our own, not about our comfort as a church. And let's see as a church how we can give, whether it's to Hodge Road, to other things, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the hope that we can share with them about Jesus Christ, because there is a day and time when all of our neighbors will also be before God. And let me ask this question. When our neighbors are before Jesus Christ and they're held accountable, and they find out that you lived near them and that you believed that there would be an accounting day and you believed that there would be a condemnation, that there would be a hell, and you believe these things, what will your neighbors say about you then? I implore you, don't look for the short-term reaction, short-term as in this life. Well, they won't like me. They will call me a bigot. Do you believe in eternity? Or not? Let's live in light of eternity. Let's pray.